Welcome to Brett. Moses is one of the most famous, beloved, complicated, and fascinating characters in the Bible. God chooses him and uses him to do extraordinary and history-defining things. He's a flawed and broken person, but nevertheless a truly great leader. In this series, we draw on his example to learn what real leadership looks like in God's kingdom and how all of us, however we view ourselves, can grow not just in our leadership, but more importantly, in our faith and maturity as God's disciples. Welcome again, everyone. It's very nice to see you. Uh, a couple of points um, of order. Uh, one, uh, I'm wearing glasses. Uh, you might have spotted that. Uh, the truth is, I've needed glasses for about seven years. Uh, and I tried for a bit, and I rejected glasses, because uh, I found them annoying. And then uh, Hannah suggested that I get glasses, I get another eye test, and it turns out that I really, really need glasses. And so she bought me these glasses. And so I'm now wearing glasses, you'll get used to it. Uh, but it, what it doesn't mean is that I'm getting older. It does not mean that, so don't believe it. Uh, the second thing is, uh, Hannah is not here, and neither is uh, my daughter Margot. Uh, that's because we went back to the UK um, for Christmas, and Margot got very sick, and she got an ear infection, and it was very serious, and they wouldn't let her fly. Uh, so um, Hannah stayed back with her, and uh, they've been there for like an extended extra uh, week and a bit now. Uh, and uh, they finally got the all clear, but the airline needs to ratify the doctor's note, etc., etc., etc. And so they haven't been able to get on a flight yet. We're hoping, praying that they would get a flight tomorrow. Please pray for them. Pray particularly for me, because uh, I have two other children to look after. Uh, but the main thing is the glasses. Uh, <laughs> good. Anyway, as we begin a uh, new year. And um, actually, before we get into... Oh, the other thing is, Hannah's got the iPad, so uh, paper. <laughs> but I'm not getting older, and I'm not that old, anyway. Um, but before we get into this week's teaching, uh, I want to actually, as, as we start the new year, kind of build off uh, what we've been um, doing in worship for a bit, which is uh, to kind of lead us in a reflection. Uh, it, will kind of serve, I guess, as an introduction uh, to this talk, and, but also to the whole series. We're starting a series on Moses. And obviously, the start of a new year is a time when we can uh, look back at the year gone, and we can also prepare ourselves for what is to come. And there is this ancient uh, prayer known as the Prayer of Examine, which was first uh, sort of created by Ignatius of Loyola. Uh, the founder of the Jesuits, about 500 years ago. And it's summarized in, in four very simple steps. Don't worry, this isn't going to go on for too long. But the four steps are remember, rejoice, repent, and resolve. So let us, if I may, encourage us to do some remembering. Can you look back at the past 12 months? What were the great things of last year? What did God do in your life and through it that you are most thankful for? Was it the start of or the renewal of a new relationship? Was it a new job or some success at work? Was it an answer to prayer? Was it a deeper experience of God, his truth and his love and his power? Can you just remember that for a moment? And can you rejoice over it? Can you say thank you? Can you go, God, you're so good? 
The faithful love of the Lord never ends. His mercies never cease, says the book of Lamentations. So remember and rejoice. But also, as we look back, and we can do this now, let's not forget the hard times as well. Moses, uh, who is the subject of our series, reflects on the challenges of the years gone by in one of the Psalms attributed to him. He says this, relent, O Lord, how long can it be? Have compassion. Make us glad for as many years as we have seen trouble. What trouble did you go through in the last year? Could you remember it before God right now? Be honest with yourself and with him, but don't just remember it. Trust him through it. Believe that he is the one who ultimately will deliver us. And next, let's look at ourselves as we reflect on 2023. Where did you mess up? In what ways did you fall short of the best that God wanted for you in this last year? Whatever it is, can I encourage you, bring it before the Lord and repent. Leave it with him, knowing that the God of all compassion is true to his word, and he extends the extraordinary gift of forgiveness to all, for everything, over and over and over and over again. He is, as we often say here, the trash man of the world, and he takes our stinking bags of garbage and he burns them up forever, so leave it with him. Remember, rejoice, repent, and finally resolve. Looking ahead to 2024, will you with me resolve to put your life in the hands of the only one capable, the only one truly qualified to actually hold your life properly? No one else can do it. As Moses goes on to say in that psalm, May the favor of the Lord our God rest on us. Establish, God, the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. So can I ask you, how do you want to live differently in this coming year? What might the favor of God resting on you mean in the next 12 months? So remember and rejoice and repent and resolve. Good, thank you for doing that. As I've been thinking about um, what the next year holds over the last few days and weeks, one thing has particularly stood out to me, and it's really about leadership. Uh, I'm sure that the onset of another presidential election has definitely informed this. But it's broader than just who will or will not be in the White House come the end of the year. Um, what struck me, actually, is that we are living in a time um, actually of a dearth of leadership. At least a dearth of great leadership. And by great, I mean Jesus-like leadership. There's a lot of leadership, of course. There's just uh, not much of it that seems to be particularly great. 
And it's not just politics, and I, don't, I, I know these jobs are impossible to do. Um, so I'm not trying to beat up on anyone. Uh, but it's not just in politics. I feel like there is a leadership dearth in education and in business, and of course in the church too. And so as I was preparing for this new year, I actually felt God say, um, we need to speak into this. How do we as a church rediscover what great, godly, Christ-like leadership looks like? And this, I think, is for two reasons. Firstly, so we will know what good leaders look like, and we will choose to follow good leaders, not bad leaders, but also that we ourselves, and of course I um, include Hannah and me in this, uh, we have huge amounts to learn about what good leadership looks like, ask anyone who knows us. But so that we can all, and I mean you, as well as me, um, can become great and can become godly in our leadership. So that's what I feel like we're called to do. And that's what this series on Moses is really going to be about. Uh, it's looking at Moses, the great, godly, humble leader. How to become great. How to become great in leadership. So let us begin at the beginning. And here are the details surrounding Moses' birth from Exodus chapter 2. And Enoch is going to come and read us. Uh, here comes Enoch. The birth of Moses. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed a child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Thank you, Enoch. So I've called this talk, um, How to Be a Great Leader, Believe God is in Control and know that you matter. Believe God is in control, and know that you matter. But before we move on, I uh, want to acknowledge that for some people, they will already be saying things to themselves like, but I don't know if I am a leader. Or perhaps I know very well that I am not a leader, and I do not want to be a leader, so how on earth is any of this relevant to me? Now, I understand this. But I believe that to be a follower of Jesus Christ necessarily means you become a leader in some way. Now, I'm not saying that every one of you ought to aspire to become pastors. Some of you would be terrible pastors. Please do not aspire to become a pastor. Some of you are called to be pastors. You should think about that. Uh, but most of you are not. 
And just for the record, do not believe that paid ministry is somehow holier or better or um, more important than anything else. What you're called to do is what you're called to do. And nothing is better or worse than that. You must do what you're called to do, and it changes from time to time, so you don't feel like you're stuck. But there is no hierarchy in God's kingdom. We are all, in fact, called to be and to become who God has made us to be. So there is no better calling than your calling. And what your calling is, is your calling. So do it and find it. And spend your time trying to work out what it is. Talk to people who know you best. But, as I said, just to be a uh, pastor is not to be better than anyone else. If anything, we're the people who couldn't find other jobs. I'm also not suggesting that all of you have the same gifts. The beauty of God's kingdom is that the whole gamut of gifts and personalities is there, and when each of us does what we are called to do, the whole thing works best. And I'm also not saying that to be a leader means you have to have a particular personality. Not everyone is extroverted. And your gifts may not actually be as obvious to people as someone else's is, are. But... If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, I believe that God has called each one of us into some form of leadership. Because by leadership, I mean each one of us is called to influence and impact the environment you find yourself in for Jesus and his kingdom. It is for all of us. You are called to influence and impact your workplace, your friends, your colleagues, your family, those you meet at the grocery store, and everywhere and anyone else for Jesus. It's your job. It's what it means to be a Christian. Welcome to the club. It's going to be fun. So choose, can I say that, to all of us, choose to step into leadership. I actually had an interesting experience in the prayer meeting before this. I felt like um, God showed me a picture of a um, football game, your football American football, uh, and there were all these players, I think there's about 700 players on a football team, and most of them spend most of the time on the bench drinking Gatorade, as far as I can tell. But what happened in this was all of the people on the bench came to join the people who were already playing. They all came in. And it wasn't like the others then sat on the benches. They were all there. And what I felt God saying was this to us as a church. There are people on the sidelines. And God is calling you into the game. And you may have been sidelined by what other people have said to you. You may have been sidelined by um, previous experiences of Christianity in church. But God is not sidelining you. You may have sidelined yourself. But God is not sidelining you. He's saying, come and play the game. Come and play. Come and lead. Be part of what I'm doing. It will change your life forever and you will feel the wonder of God's spirit flowing through you as you use your gifts in his kingdom. So that's what I felt like God's saying. Take it or leave it. But as we try to step into leadership, the first thing you need to do is to believe the right things about God. Firstly, that he is good and he is in control. I'm not sure if uh, you noticed this as the reading was read, but none of the characters are mentioned by name. None apart from Moses, who's only mentioned right at the end in verse 10. So verse 1, a man married a woman. We don't learn Moses' parents' names for another six chapters. Verse 2, she gave birth to a son. He was a fine child. Verse 3, she 
the child, verse 4, his sister, verse 5, Pharaoh's daughter, and a female slave, verse 6, one of the Hebrew babies, verse 7, one of the Hebrew women. No one gets a name. And this is quite intentional. Right at the start, the author wants us to know that the main player is no human. These humans, of course, are important, but the action is happening to them as much as it is happening by them. And this is because, ultimately, God is the one. He is the main player behind the scenes, fulfilling his purposes for the world. He is the star of this show. We skipped over the first chapter of Exodus, but our passage really needs to be read in its context. And the context is this. Things are terrible for the Israelite people. They are living as captives and slaves in Egypt, and Pharaoh has just decreed that there will be a genocide of all newborn male babies. He's going to slaughter them and throw them into the Nile. These are dark days for God's people. And perhaps you are feeling like these are dark days for you right now, at the beginning of the year. It's actually the time when people can feel the most depressed. It should be a time of hope, shouldn't it? But often people feel, oh my goodness, another year I'm not ready. When that's the case, it's hard not to feel like the world is closing in on us. And we can start questioning where God is in all of it. A um, dear friend of ours uh, told us just before Christmas uh, that um, she and her husband were expecting their first child. And we were absolutely over the moon for them. This was... Um, such great news, they will be wonderful parents, and we rejoiced with them. But then, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, we heard that the doctors had found that the pregnancy was not viable, and in fact, uh, the mother's health was in acute danger, and she needed to be operated on straight away. She was rushed to hospital. She's recovering now, but the implications of that surgery are very serious for her. And it's devastating. And I know it's easy because I have felt this for us to think at times like these, where on earth is God in all of this? Is he in control at all? And the same would have been true of the Israelites. Has God abandoned us altogether? But the story of Moses' birth, and indeed actually the story of the Bible from start to finish, is no. No, he has not abandoned us. We are not deists. Deists believe in a God who made the world and then abandoned it to its fate. Christians believe in a God who made the world and has since the beginning been acting in it to redeem it out of his great love. He cannot help himself because he's not just loving, he is love. It is part of his character. He cannot see it go to ruin. And so our lives and your life is overseen by an infinitely wise, infinitely powerful Father in heaven who loves us and has, who has good and gracious plans for our lives. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart, God says to the prophet Jeremiah, and he says it to you too. I know you. I set you apart. Now, it's important we understand what God being in control is and what it isn't. Whilst the Bible never says that God has abandoned the world to its fate, it also never says that everything happens just as God wants it to. 
If that were the case, there would be no need for Jesus spending so much of his time writing all the things that are wrong. In fact, the starting point of the Bible is that there is something broken with the world, something ungodly about it, and it needs correcting. So, despite what you may have heard on the internet, no, everything does not happen for a reason. Reject that thought as fast and as, as fully as you could possibly can. Bad things happen, and they are bad. Nevertheless, God is continually stepping into human history to right what is wrong. And so to say that God is in control is to say that God oversees all creation, each and every one of our lives with his care and his direction. At the beginning of Exodus, the people of God are in slavery. All male children are set to be slaughtered. There seems to be no hope. But in the very midst of this, God is bringing a Hebrew male baby into the world to lead his people out of captivity because this is what God does. This is what God is like, has always been like, and always will be like. And what that means for you is that you are not an accident. Even if you never knew your parents, even if they didn't want you, even if you were unplanned, you are not an accident. We cannot fully comprehend how the eternal God is able to exist outside time, seeing all history and future in one glance, whilst also being fully actively present in any moment. But such is his nature that even if your parents did not intend you, the fact that you are here means God intended you. The message translation of Psalm 139 puts it like this. You know exactly how I was made, God, bit by bit. How I was sculpted from nothing into something. Like an open book, you watched me grow from conception to birth. All the stages of my life were spread out before you. The days of my life, all prepared before I'd even lived one day. So, in order to become fully who you are, in order to grow into the leader you have called to become, you must know with all your heart that your life is no accident to God. You must know that you are not random or unseen. Because if you believe that you're an accident, you will live like you're an accident. When there's no ultimate goal or purpose to life, what do our choices actually really matter at all? Who cares how we treat other people or yourself? If you're an accident, you might as well live like an accident. But if there was a plan for your life from all eternity, if before even the creation of the world, God knew your name, he knew the intricacies of your fingertips, the numbers of hair on your head, if he molded your personality and gifted you with talents and abilities before any of this even existed, and if you believe that in all, with all your heart, you are going to live according to that purpose. You're going to find it so much easier to put your life in his hands as we start a new year. You're going to say to him, show me what you made me for. 
Let my life make a difference for you. God is good and he's in control, so you're not an accident. And secondly, God is good and he's in control, which means that God will not be taken by surprise by anything. Years earlier, God has spoken to the Israelites' forefather, Abraham. He says this in Genesis 15. Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. God knew that this was going to happen. Listen, I, I know that there's a lot of hope and excitement for the year. I am hopeful and excited for this year. I think it's going to be a great year. But also, let's be honest, things could be quite shaky, couldn't they? And last year, I know, with everything that went on in the world, ongoing situation in Ukraine, the war in Gaza, economic uncertainty, political uncertainty, writers and actors' strikes, I know many of us really felt at sea. What on earth is going on? And whatever happens this year, I think we can be sure that there will be some surprises, right? Some things that we're not expecting, some things that either are great or terrible, but that could possibly knock us for six, which is a British expression which you won't know. But no, know this, none of it will be a surprise to God. And therefore, what we need to be is not surprised either. Are you buffeted about by whatever wind of change is blown at any one time? Isn't it exhausting? I'll say it again, and I know people's livelihood depends on it. Get off social media. The world is in desperate need of leaders who aren't pushed and pulled this way and that by whatever happens to be the latest crisis or disaster. And this only comes from a deep understanding that our God is not surprised and therefore we don't need to be. Now, of course, this does not mean cold detachment. We shouldn't shut ourselves off from the feelings and the injustice. Was there, after all, anyone ever more engaged with the pain of the world than Jesus of Nazareth? Moses, as we shall see, is so deeply moved by the suffering of his people that he risks everything to lead them out of slavery. Rather, it means that we feel it, we are full of empathy and care, we fight for justice, but we are not derailed. Uh, I remember talking a while back uh, to a friend of mine who um, was training with me to be a church leader. He now leads a great church in central London. And we were discussing at the time what we thought were the sort of primary attributes people needed to lead a church. And we discussed gifting. Can they preach? Can they teach? Are they entrepreneurial? Can they manage and look after people well? And we discussed character. Are they honest? Are they kind? Are they brave? And we discussed spirituality. Do they have faith? Do they pray? What's their relationship with Jesus like? And of course, we decided all of those things were vitally important. But what my friend said, and has always stuck with me, is he said, I think the primary attribute of a church leader needs to be that they are rocky, not sliced alone, but rocky like Simon Peter. Jesus calls Simon, and he changes his name to Peter, saying, you are the rock on which I will build my church. Rocky people are solid. They're not easily moved. 
The primary attribute for a church leader is to be rocky because that's the primary attribute Jesus identifies in the person on whom he builds the whole of his church, Peter. You can become rocky when you build your life on the rock of God. One who's not surprised by anything, ever. No one knows what 2024 holds for us. But when we know that God won't be surprised, we can anchor ourselves to him and not be moved. And finally, God is in control, so everything will work out for the good in the end. Verse 2. Moses' mother became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. When she saw that he was a fine child. When she saw that he was gorgeous... Does that mean that? Is it actually all in the end? The Bible has exactly the same values as Hollywood. Hotness is really what it's all about. I'm not sure. After all, which mother does not think their child is the most beautiful person that the world has ever seen? I don't know if you've noticed this, and I know I'm on uncomfortable ground here, but... New parents present their child and go, isn't he gorgeous? Isn't he beautiful? Isn't he stunning? And you're looking at a thing that looks like a 45-year-old balding man going, yes, the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. Now, my children, when they were babies, were, of course, objectively speaking, absolutely stunning. But that's by the by. The point is not that Moses was beautiful. The word for fine is actually better translated good. It's the Hebrew word tov. And by using it, the author is purposefully referencing the most famous use of this word previously. It's the word used in the frame after each day of creation in Genesis 1. The Lord looked on what he had made and saw that it was good. Tov, he saw that it was good. Moses' mother looked on her child and saw that he was good. Tov. What the author is doing is saying this. This is not just a child. This is not just a birth. This is the beginning of a new creation. In Moses, the whole of humanity is being led out of darkness into a new Eden. This is not just the birth of one man. It's the birth of a whole people. And the connections with Genesis don't just end there. Verse 3. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. The word for basket, tiba, actually means ark. It's used to describe Noah's boat. An ark coated with tar and pitch the only time it's ever used in the whole of Scripture. The similarities are obvious. Both Noah and Moses are specifically elected to forego a tragic, watery fate. Both are placed in an ark and carried on the very water that could have been their destruction. And both Noah and Moses are the vehicles through whom God creates a new people for his purposes. Moses' story is a continuation of the great story of Genesis. Creation and redemption, creation and redemption, creation and redemption. 
But as Christians, we want to say something more. As Christians, we read all the stories of the Old Testament, not just in isolation, but as preludes to a bigger story. A story that isn't carrying on, but has been completed. As Christians, we always approach the Old Testament from the point of view that there's another baby born in desperate circumstances, fleeing the threat of another ruler decreeing a genocide on all male babies, a baby that wasn't just tove good, but in him resided all grace and all truth. So Jesus is the final word to the story of redemption, the final word displayed for all to see in the cross, in the empty tomb, and in the pouring out of God's spirit on his church. Without Jesus, the story of Moses is actually just one more story. A great story, but just one more story. Creation, redemption, but ultimately things just returning to how they always were. The world still would need saving. And God's people are still waiting for the next Moses. But in Jesus, the story of Moses, and indeed the whole narrative arc of the Old Testament, has its end and its conclusion. All the promises of the Old Testament have their yes and amen in him. Call off the search, you've been found. Which means you are not stuck in a loop. We are not longing for another deliverer. We're not just reading the story of Moses, trying to glean some moral lessons. If this year I could just be a bit better, if I could just have a bit more faith, if I could just be a bit more like Moses, then everything will be all right. Rather, as Jesus cries out on the cross, it's all finished, and God has won. This means that all the pharaohs of your life, all the horrible bosses, all the abusive spouses, all the, all the cancer, all the family problems, all the health problems, all the downturns in the economy. Your life and your future is not determined by any one of these things. Because in his death and resurrection, Jesus has defeated the power of all of them. I have every confidence. As much as I know anything to be true, I believe this to be true, that my dear friends who lost their baby, they will grieve because they are devastated. They will cry and they will shout out, as any healthy person must. But I know because they know Jesus, and I've seen their faith, because they have experienced the power of his resurrection and his deep love, they will not be overcome by this. They will not be derailed by this. Jesus will hold them. And he will heal them. And from trauma, as he always does, he will bring glorious goodness. There are times in life, aren't there, where we can feel really trapped. We can feel overwhelmed. I've got to be honest, there were times last year where I felt completely um, and entirely constrained by the whim of circumstances, completely out of my control. And I wonder, as we finish, are you in that place? Do you feel like you are in the grip of something or someone? Has someone got a hold of you and will not let go? What is it? 
Are you in the grip of your own fears? Where's the next paycheck coming from? What about my health? What do these people think of me? Will I find the right relationship? Will I ever be loved? It's very easy to live like this. But the message of the cross is that in Jesus' body, he has put to death all those fears for those who love him. What he has done is he has prized those hands that look to throttle you away from you and has placed his hands over your life instead. And he's drawn you into his loving embrace. My sheep listen to my voice, says Jesus, and I know them. And they follow me. I will give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one, no one, no thing, no one will ever snatch them from my hands. When we are in the hands of Jesus, nothing else can take hold of us. So to end and to begin this year, can I encourage you to take that step? Put your life back in his hands. Say to him the boldest, most faith-filled prayer that you can. Your will be done. We say it, don't we, in the Lord's Prayer. I don't know whether we actually really fully understand its meaning. But as much as we can, your will be done. Grow me into the leader that I am, so that I might be fully who you made me to be. That I might bless my world with you and your kingdom this coming year. Can that be our prayer? And let's see what happens. Who knows what God could do in and through you? Whatever it will be, it will be full of life and joy, full of grace and truth, because Jesus will be at the heart of it. And there is no better place to be. Amen.